0: You're listening to WJMSradio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And welcome, welcome back to Monday afternoon right here on WJMSradio.com, where radio is reimagined. And you're tuned in to The Fired Up Show right here with Steve, your host, that's me, And as always, we're going to get into the political machine here in this country and talk about the things that are going on that affect you and me and the rest of the voting public here in the United States. Uh, First, as always, let's uh, do our COVID numbers as we do. And we are currently at 44.3 million cases being reported here in the U.S., 713,000 people have died from the disease and we have 399.7 million people who have received uh, vaccination that includes people who have received both doses uh, or a single dose uh, case Uh, there are 56.4 percent of the adult population in this country is now fully vaccinated 65.3 percent have received at least a single dose So we continue to make that progress with COVID. And uh, before we get into the political news of the day, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Ms. CEO of WJMS Radio, as well as the host of Sound Off, heard every Saturday at noon here on WJMSradio.com, and also who happens to be my daughter. Just wanted to give congratulations to her And to her husband, Frank, uh, we just got back from Georgia where we were last week celebrating their uh, marriage. It was a beautiful ceremony. And, you know, my daughter looked remarkable in her wedding dress. So um, best of luck. God bless to the happy couple. And, you know, as a father, I I just have to say I'm just over the moon happy uh, for the two of them. All right, let's get back into the news of the day. And we're going to uh, pick up on discussions we've had over the last couple of shows where we've talked about redistricting. As you know, in prior shows, we talked about the redistricting effort going on in Texas and some other states. uh, But we're going to focus first on what's going on in the state of Michigan. And uh, this, uh, based on some information that came out of the Associated Press, And it talks about how after uh, seven weeks of mapping, uh, there's a a preliminary uh, set of redistricting maps that have come out of their brand new redistricting commission. Um, The maps, although they're not final and they could be subject to further revision, will give early indications of the panel's approach uh, once the voters, or I'm sorry, after a voters empowered it and not lawmakers to draw lines to minimize partisan gerrymandering. As we've talked about gerrymandering uh, over many shows here on Fired It Up, uh, it is the process where the party in power uh, in the partisan model draws the district lines with the intention of maintaining their control uh, over the political power uh, both at the state level and at the federal level. Uh, several states in the country have adopted uh, so-called nonpartisan commissions, and you know Michigan is one of those. And the, the composition of the commission in Michigan uh, consists of four Democrats, four Republicans, and five members who affiliate with neither major party, and they've planned to move to vote rather on some proposed maps uh, following a 45 day comment period. And then they will adopt final maps by year's end, about two, uh, two months after the constitutional deadline. The deadline was uh, moved, of course, you know, due to concerns about COVID and the impact it had not only on the census, but on the counting and, and other elements of that process. The current districts that Michigan has, which were drawn in 2011 by the GOP-controlled legislature, uh, are considered among the most gerrymandered in the country, even though the state leans slightly democratic overall. And we've talked about this point here on the show. Uh, The the thing about the, the problems that gerrymandering exists is that it gives excess amounts of power and control to you know, what could be a minority party just based on where uh, the people who make up the district live and what uh, those districts are drawn with regard to political leaning. Um, So in Michigan, Democrats won more votes statewide in 2018 and 2020. But the way the districts are drawn, Republicans hold a 58-52 and 22-16 majorities in the House and Senate, respectively. The uh, 2018 constitutional amendment that created the panel says the new maps cannot provide a disproportionate advantage to any political party. The requirement, however, ranks fourth out of seven overall criteria for uh, consideration in drawing the maps. Commissioners must also comply with federal law by ensuring that minority voters have an equal opportunity to elect representatives of their choice, and they must draw lines reflecting Michigan's diverse population and communities of interest. So, you know, they they rank the effectiveness of the districts in what's called the efficiency gap, and it's a measure uh, that gives a numerical value to partisan fairness. Uh, The current districts are 10.9% and 11.6% in favor of the GOP under a composite of 13 statewide races between 2012 and 2020. Now consider that a score near zero is considered politically neutral so you get a sense of the shift to the Republican Party that these districts now hold. Um, So one of the things under the drafts that are are being considered is that they would uh, have efficiency ratings of 03 and 2.3% respectively. And they would keep communities of interest intact and create more districts with opportunities to elect minority candidates. Although this approach has been long opposed by the Republicans, uh, this is the aim of this nonpartisan commission. So when we look at it, you know, under, under the 2020 census, Michigan is one of the states that actually ends up losing a U.S. seat in the House of Representatives, uh, reducing their number to 13. So even though under... The potential maps that were submitted or are under consideration from the nonpartisan commission would be fairer to Democrats in terms of their composition. It would still uh, leave a a uh, advantage to the Republican Party in the state. Um, you know, it it's clear that the the partisan gerrymandering process, and as we've discussed, is not is not fair. It is, as we say, partisan, and you know, a a more fair approach is something that you know is uh, dreamed of and wished for, but doesn't yet exist in um, many of the states that you know have been looked at for uh, redistricting, and. You know, it, it is something that is going to need to be dealt with uh, over the, the years to come and the decades to come and in future census counts. You know, and a, a way needs to be uh, determined that represents the districts, you know, perhaps uh, based more on the overall political results in the state. For example, if we stay with uh, the, the state of Michigan for a second... Hypothetically, under this, this thinking, if Michigan voted, um, you know, 57% Republican and 43% Democrat, then each district, if it were to be, you know, completely nonpartisan and fair, would have a 57-43 uh, representation Republican to Democrat uh, across the board. Now, while that wouldn't give, you know, one party or the other an, an overwhelming control, it would at least make the district's uh, party competitive in that a, a Republican candidate in order to, to win the district would need to appeal to and garner more votes from the Democratic Party and vice versa. Uh, you know, it, it would eliminate this uh, idea of just blocking in these so called safe seats and make these dis- districts more representative of the people that live there. Um, you know, and there, there's, a, as I've said before, there's going to be a lot of back and forth over the redistricting efforts in the country over the next, you know, uh, two, three months or so. And I think what we're going to see is a lot of uh, districts go, or a lot of states going the way of Michigan, and you know having these these disputes uh, over the intended nonpartisan makeup of the delegations, but what ends up breaking down into you know partisan you know politics as as usual. And a sample of this is information that came out of the Virginia Redistricting Commission. And these both of these articles came out of the Associated Press. And in Virginia, on um, last Friday, uh, the negotiations actually broke down between members of their bi- bipartisan redistricting commission after the Democrats and Republicans failed to g- agree on which proposed maps they should use as a starting point. Uh, It it got so uh, contentious that the Democratic citizen co-chair, Greta Harris, left the meeting uh, that they had to discuss the proposed maps. And, you know, along with some other members, uh, basically, you know, they just walked out of the meeting that day on that Friday, uh, basically ending the process for that day because they didn't have a quorum even though other members of the Commission wanted to continue um, you know and it, it's it's again just typical of what we're seeing as the redistricting process moves forward in the current state of political division that, that is uh, the reality here in the United States um, so you know it, it's it's something that, you know, is, is ongoing is something that we're going to have to keep an eye on and be very aware of because this is going to impact uh, political power for the next 10 years, both at the federal level, you know, and at the state level. And this, this concern, you know, over bipartisan cooperation, uh, which is proving to be so elusive, uh, is, is beyond just Michigan and Virginia but it's showing up in Ohio and New York. Um, all three states uh, are meeting for the first time this year and have seen members splinter into partisan camps. So, you know, as as we've talked about on this show, a method is going to need to be undertaken by which the, the residents of the state, by virtue of the the census count um, are are going to need to somehow uh, play a larger role in how these districts are drawn, rather than just under the pure political partisanship that we have seen you know over the past you know thirty years or so. Uh, this is likely a problem that's not going to be solved quickly. Uh, it's probably going to take a couple of you know ten year cycles of the census for this problem to iron itself out but in the meantime you know we need to make sure as the voters that that we're getting our voices heard in the process um the the virginia situation while you know just a a single event disagreement uh, has the potential to break down into very partisan bickering between the two which could do only delaying the final adoption of a map. So you know, for, the, for those of you in Virginia, when the public hearing period opens up, you need to make sure that you are uh, letting your voice be heard uh, in those public hearings in no uncertain terms so that your elected officials understand and agree to what the feeling of the residents of the state Want um, it? It's it's a a, a, a piece part of what the political divide in this country uh, is all about, and it is you know as I've said on this show before, uh, there is you know what is now being called again uh, a great silent majority uh, of people in the middle, neither extreme right or extreme left. But you know, moderate and progressive uh, thinking voters and residents who are you know, not being heard and feel left out, well, we've got to make our voices heard. We've got to make you know, our feelings count. And if we're not if we're not listened to, then we need to take the action of voting representatives out up and down the line from the state level to the federal level. So it's something that we'll keep an eye on here on Fired Up and we'll continue to report out on how the states are progressing in their redistricting effort as those uh, become available to us uh, through the media. And it comes down to this, and this is a point that I've brought out many times on this show. Uh, The thing you have to keep in mind is that Democrats and Republicans uh, have relatively equal percentages of the voting population in this country. Both are, you know, a, a point or two below 30% of the overall voting population. The largest share of voters are those of us that occupy the middle. Uh, you know, those are, you know, the moderates, progressives, independents, and so forth. And it is this group that is going to swing you know the the political pendulum, you know, one way or the other, and you know the more empowered uh, this group in the middle, this so-called silent majority, becomes through its actions and through its interactions with the political leadership in this country, the more that occurs, the more the voices uh, of of these groups, these majority groups in the middle, are heard. That is where. The change is going to get driven from. And, you know, it it is up to us to, you know, be informed, be educated, uh, dig wider, dig deeper, as I always say, and make sure that we are uh, protecting our rights and making, you know, our political opinions felt by our political leaders. Uh, That's going to require something that. You know, is is going to be difficult for a large portion of the voters in this country. That is, we're going to have to stop thinking of our elected officials in terms of popularity contest results and think about them in terms of job performance. Are they doing what we have sent them to the State House or what we have sent them to City Hall or what we have sent them to uh, Congress and the Senate? Uh, are they doing what what we want them to do. If not, it is up to us to exercise the courage to, you know, remove those people and replace them with people who, you know, follow more of the guideline that the true majority of people in this country want to follow. And it is also up to us to make sure that we're getting the message out to potential candidates that, you know, they are being held under A microscope. They are being watched, and the expectation is that the will of the people is what is going to drive uh, their political preferences and their political future. Uh, Once we get to that level, uh, then you know things will definitely change. You know. So, on a related note, um, I I did some research. Um, just out of curiosity, on this show, on, on several occasions, I've talked about options for a third political party. And as I've mentioned, uh, if a, a viable third political party uh, were able to be constituted uh, or a, a coalition of existing members of Congress uh, were able to you know, be brought together, they would actually form a, a voting bloc uh, that would make any you know, political decisions necessary to be made become more representative of the people simply because we wouldn't have, as, as we have now, these razor-thin majorities going back and forth. If you think about it, we bounce back and forth between you know, Democrats in power and Republicans in power Republicans lose uh, power, Democrats gain power. So in in doing some research, what I found out is that if we looked at the Congressional Asian Caucus, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus and the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, there is a block of votes there in the House that total up to 160 votes or about 37 percent. Of the U.S. House of Representatives and total up to 11 senators or about 11 percent of the United States senators uh, currently in office right now. If those three groups could come together around a common agenda and vote as a block uh, for ideas that favor. You know, their constituents, their represented groups um, that would eliminate this razor thin margin battle back and forth uh, that we've been seeing, particularly uh, since, you know, the 2020 election. But has been going on for decades, you know, in order for you know, any legislation to get through, it would be necessary for this united caucus uh, to weigh in. Uh, you know, one side or the other, pro or con, and, you know, throw their votes toward where a, a more cohesive and, and more mainstream thought process would be. So it's something, something to think about. You know, if these groups could come together and, you know, represent their constituents as a voting block. Um, the, the, the power uh, stranglehold that currently exists between the Democrats and the Republicans would essentially be greatly uh, diminished or eliminated altogether. And we've seen this in the past. Um, back in the, the 70s and 80s and, and into the early 90s, the Congressional Black Caucus used to exercise that, you know, block voting, that collective voting power on a regular basis. You know, they had uh, something like 40 members uh, of, of their group, and they would vote uh, as a block on measures that impacted uh, the black community and communities of color in this country. Well, if we look at the numbers now, The Congressional Black Caucus, both in the House and in the Senate, has 57 members. The Hispanic Caucus in the House and Senate has 38. And the Asian Caucus is the largest of the three, with 82 members in um, the House and Senate. And, you know, as I said, if those groups voted as a cohesive unit, the the power brokering structure in the House and in the Senate would be you know, forever changed. In order to get something done, these groups would have to be in agreement in order to vote with or against whatever the legislation is that's being considered. And as a result, our political process would become many orders of magnitude more responsive to the will of the people rather than the will of the special interests, the lobbyists, and the money. So, g- give that a moment of thought. So, you know, if the, the Congress at the federal level or your local state house, uh, through the, the coalition of these individual groups acting as a voting bloc, um, not being a, a third political party, which would take many election cycles to build up from the grassroots level up through the states to the the federal legislative houses. But, you know, these groups, if if they were uh, operating as a cohesive unit and were, you know, working for the benefit of the people and not by, you know, I'm not saying that they would work for only people of color. Uh, the the other thing that occurs, and, and you keep in mind, is that uh, laws and policies that improve the condition for you know minorities and people of color in this country uh, are not limited to benefit just to minorities and people of color. If we look at all of the social programs that have been constituted over the years, uh, you know Medicare, Social Security. Um, you know, food stamps, housing benefits, so on and so forth, uh, they end up, you know, impacting and benefiting everyone in this country. And that includes, you know, white people in this country. White people are still numerically the largest uh, group of citizens in this country. Uh, Even though, you know, representations may change and and all of that, uh, numerically and, you know, economically, White people still are the power group in this country. So, you know, while a a third political party, a standalone political party uh, to stand beside the Democrat and the Republican parties uh, is a, a viable idea, is something that we should continue to work for. It is also something that will take a long time to bring to fruition. Whereas an agreement between the minority caucuses of the House and Senate at the federal level and you know in, in the same vein at your local state house level is something that can be implemented much quicker and we would start to see benefits much sooner than we would for a standalone third party. So something to think about. Uh, as I say, you know, do your own research. Listen to the, you know, the the broad sense of the the media that's out there. Um, don't just limit it to the you know conservative or the liberal media or you know social media. You know, go full circle. Find out what all the sides are talking about, and then compare and look for the truth that usually lies in the middle. So we'll give you that to think about as we. Uh, get ready to take our first break here on Fire It Up, right here on WJMSradio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. We're going to take our break. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Because of the COVID-19 virus, we have had to learn new ways to be together. We've had to find new ways to communicate. We have to find new ways to play. And we have to find new ways to keep each other safe for myself and my family, I'm going to take the COVID-19 vaccine. To learn more about the vaccine, go to cdc.gov. Let's do this together. And welcome back to Fired Up right here on wjmsradio.com where radio is reimagined. And let's um let's turn our attention to economic issues. Uh if if you've been paying any attention at all to the media over the last oh I don't know months six eight weeks, um, that it has been nothing but talk about you know infrastructure packages and the debt ceiling and so forth. Um, let let's let's take a quick shot at the infrastructure package. Uh, Republicans have been lambasting the Democrats for the $1.2 trillion and the $3.5 trillion infrastructure packages that the Democrats are proposing and you know are moving uh, through the House and now into the Senate. As I've talked about on this show many times, um, both political parties are playing a series of games with the security and, you know, the economic stability and social well-being of this country. Um, the the Democrats hold the majorities in the House and the Senate, and they could get these uh, these bills passed with their own, you know, with their own caucus by a party-line vote. Um but what we have seen is, you know, two, de- two Democratic senators um, keeping their feet in the mud, uh, delaying or, or obstructing the process, as well as, you know, a, a Republican caucus that has been, you know, just uh, using the media day after day to paint the Democrats uh, in this, this excessive spend mode Uh, method of thinking. Um, And by so saying and and constantly talking about the impact these bills will have on the debt, they seem to be playing a very real game of revisionist history. Um, And, you know, forgetting to mention the fact that in 2017, the Republican uh, proposed and approved uh, tax cut added nearly $8 trillion to uh, the, the deficit, uh, largely unfunded. That is, there's no uh, offsetting revenue coming in to pay for any or all of it. Um, and you know, essentially, by, by doing that, you know, they actually have set the stage for this exceptionally high uh, deficit that we are forced to take uh, under um, under acceptance from our political leaders. Think about it this way: if you have a house, or if the place you live, if you need, you know, a new roof, and you know, new windows, uh, and you know, a new heating system, you know, and all of it is needed to be addressed right now. Uh, but you've also, you know, you want to paint the living room and paint the kitchen. Uh, the analogy here is that the Republicans are, are saying, you know, we'll, we'll fund part of it. We'll fund the painting project, but the super expensive infrastructure of your house uh, segment, uh, we're not going to do. So if you're a property owner and you're faced with you know, the, the situations I've outlined. Uh, what are you going to do? Are you going to paint the living room? Uh, or are you going to get the roof fixed so that water doesn't leak into your house? Or get the heating system fixed as we approach winter so that you can keep your family warm? Um, you know, or are you going to bite the bullet and do all of what is necessary to be done, uh, including painting the kitchen and the living room? Uh, and, you know, realize that, yeah, you're going to have some debt to pay off as a result, but your living situation will be better off for having done it. It's, it's a, a little bit similar to that. You know, we have kicked the can in this country down the road on maintaining our roads and highways, on, you know, building and improving our school system on you know improving the strength and security of our energy grid last winter in texas because of a cold and the fact that no repairs had been done on the electric grid system in a number of years much of texas suffered suffered a blackout at the height of a cold weather streak which led to you know the the deaths of several dozen people and all kinds of other problems. It, it is part of their responsibility uh, as elected officials to take care of the country. And that goes all the way up from the local to the federal. And by abrogating that responsibility, or by you know converting it to purely a political argument, one side versus the other, meanwhile, out here in the middle the the people of this country ended up suffering as a result. So yes, we need to spend some significant amount of money to to fix the problems that we have in this country. And as a byproduct of that, we will create, you know, many hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of jobs to do that work. Um, and you know, the, the idea that you know, the one party is accusing the other party of blowing up the deficit while conveniently ignoring the fact that you know, a few years ago they blew it up and taking into account that under the proposed legislation for the infrastructure package, um, most of it, if not all of it, would be paid for by tax increases uh, on corporations and the wealthiest individuals in this country one other thing that contributed to the deficit problem of the 2017 republican tax cut is that it was a tax cut that it reduced revenue coming into the federal you know system in order to pay for these the democratic proposal at least has options that will use, uh, you know, tax increases to fund the things that need to get done under the infrastructure program so that its impact on the deficit will be significantly less, if not eliminated. Um, so, you know, I, I, have, I have huge issue with the way that both the Republicans and the Democrats are playing this game. Don't they realize that, you know, our house needs these repairs? The things that are being proposed are things that this country needs and will create millions of jobs in the process and work to boost the economy, which will generate more revenue to come back into the system to pay for it all. You know, so, you know, just be aware that, you know, when one party... Is accusing the other party of you know blowing up the deficit or you know spending wildly without consideration for the impacts on the economy. Keep it in perspective that both parties do it. You know the Republicans did it in 2017. The Democrats have done it. You know in in the early 2000s when the uh, bailout programs that were instituted under the Obama uh, uh, administration, Republicans were screaming at that, saying that you know that it was going to blow up the deficit. Well, what happened was those uh, expenditures were actually repaid, so that the impact on the deficit was you know nowhere near what had been projected. Uh, so. You know, again, both parties play the game. In recent weeks, you know, we've seen a similar scenario with the so-called debt ceiling or the, the uh, limit that is placed by the federal government on how much money the United States can borrow to pay its existing bills. One of the points to listen for, When they're talking about when when, you know, the Republicans in this case are talking about uh, the danger of, you know, raising the debt ceiling with all of this anticipated debt that is going to to occur is that that argument is actually disingenuous. The debt ceiling limit is the amount of money that the federal government uh, can borrow in order to pay already existing debt it does not count in future debt that may accrue that will be taken care of by you know another increase if needed uh, in the future this is just to pay the bills we've already incurred okay think think about that carefully and listen with that third ear when you hear politicians talking about how, you know, the, the infrastructure package uh, is going uh, to explode the government beyond the, the debt ceiling limit that they're talking about and so forth. Um, but anyway, over the course of last week, there were some very heated arguments going on in the Senate uh, regarding, uh, you know, passing a debt ceiling increase. Uh, in order to keep the government from defaulting on its credit, uh, you know, on, based on the bills that it's incurred, um, you know, and the the leader of the Senate uh, came out with an announcement on Friday that he would not again help Democrats extend the government's borrowing authority, raising fresh doubts about how Congress will avert a federal default when A temporary fix that they voted in place expires in December. Uh, You know, the the Republicans uh, and and Mitch McConnell, um, 11 GOP senators uh, voted to extend the debt limit by four hundred and eighty billion dollars. And which is enough to last about two months uh, at the 11th hour. And, you know, this is this is the, the game that we hear played over and over and over again. They know there's a debt limit as we start to get near it. Um, they start talking about how we're going to need to raise the debt ceiling. And it keeps going in the, the circle of talk back and forth and back and forth as the clock runs down. And then what ends up happening at the 11th hour, they end up passing an amendment to to extend the debt ceiling. Rather than addressing it ahead of time, you know, which would be prudent, they always wait till the last minute so that the minority party can use that as a leverage chip in order to get other concessions from the majority party. And this has been done, as I've said, by both parties Democrats have done it, Republicans have done it. Um, but anyway, so. Mitch McConnell, who's been an absolute, you know, uh, uh, agent against raising the debt ceiling, finally um, uh, agreed um, on Thursday. I'm sorry, on Friday, that he would uh, move members of his caucus to approve it, uh, and then turn around and and begin the rhetoric of how. He's not going to approve another. Democrats will need to use you know, their majority to vote through any future debt, debt ceilings or the economic packages that are on the table and so forth. So the Republicans are, in a sense, saying we're going to extend the debt limit because it's necessary to avoid a dramatic uh, U.S. and global economic, devastation uh, but you know you're gonna have to do it on your own next time and then you know in in the back room conversation, they prepare to use that as a political attack campaign in the upcoming midterms. Again, forgetting about the fact that you know this this debt limit contains at least eight trillion dollars uh, from the latest Republican tax cut. They're trying to lay all the blame for the problem on the Democrats uh, and, you know, practice that revisionist history. And, you know, the Democrats, you know, have have thrown words back. Um, Senate Majority Leader uh, took to the floor and and basically raked the Republican Party over the coals for their approach to this and so forth and so on. Um, You know, in, in now the republicans are using that attack to you know basically walk away from any future um, participation in you know what could be considered partisan solutions to our problems Um, you know and in this this article uh, from the associated press uh, it talks about how the democrats would push new legislation further extending federal borrowing, borrowing authority come December without GOP backing, you know, and, you know, then it gets into discussion about, uh, you know, changing the rules on the filibuster to create an exception for debt ceiling uh, or or debt limit uh, votes, uh, which raises again, the arguments between Democrats and Republicans uh, about the future of the filibuster, um, which also brings back into play the opposition to any change from the filibuster from two Democratic senators, Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, who have said that they oppose, you know, making changes to the filibuster for fear that you know the Republicans will turn around and use it against Democrats. You know, once the Republicans regain power uh, and, and so forth, um, we've been going around on the circle of this argument for easily, I don't know, six or eight months now. And, you know, it, it, it's frankly uh, wearing thin. And in fact, the American people are getting a little bit tired of this this go around uh, with these two Democratic senators who seem to have taken it upon themselves uh, to to block this procedure uh, for some as yet unknown uh, political reason, you know it, it's it's just mind-numbingly crazy that you know the the Democratic Party hasn't corralled these two senators and sat them down and you know just given them the ultimatum of what is it that you want in order. For you to work with us to do what we need to do for these necessary uh, expenditures that we have to make. You know, the, the crazy idea is you know, to allow the U.S. federal government to default on the full faith and credit uh, of the United States through this, this political wrangling um, is, is so ridiculously risky. Uh, that it, it, it just it, it boggles the mind. Um, it, if the U.S. defaulted on its credit, the, that would basically eliminate the U.S. dollar, among other things. It would eliminate the U.S. dollar as uh, a secure basis currency for the world. What does that mean? Many countries around the world base their currency on the strength and stability of the U.S. dollar. Because for you know, many, many decades, the U.S. dollar was uh, the most if or among the most stable currencies on the planet. So, you know, the, the idea that defaulting on its ability to pay its bills would put uh, the U.S. dollar as a, a secure currency... Uh, for the global markets would throw the entire global economy into absolute turmoil. Um, we've come close to this before, uh, in, during the Obama administration, and you know, during the issue with the sequester, which I talked about in the prior show. You know, the, the, the threat of the U.S. dollar being destabilized caused credit agencies to lower the credit rating of the United States of America, and you know, caused a a global hiccup in markets around the world. Um, if the Republicans, you know, decide to hold fast to their their threat of not allowing these changes to happen, and you know, in in December, the the uh, the U.S. Uh, credit is you know, brought to a halt because we would no longer have the ability to borrow the amounts of money that we need in order to pay our ongoing debts. And again, remember, this is current debt as of now, not future debt You know, with the, the infrastructure packages uh, that the Biden administration is proposing or future debt that may incur from the next administration, and so forth on down the line. Um, This problem is one that we continue to cycle through on a regular basis. It's also part of the problem that leads to some of the global market instability that we see because our allies and others look at the U.S. and actually have to question the financial stability of this country. And you know the, the, the fact that the Republicans are even playing this game is you know, uh, among the most risky, uh, high-stakes gamble that uh, a country can do. So how do we cure this problem? Well, in my opinion, uh, the, the cure is the same thing that we have said on this show many times, is that the American public needs to let its elected officials know that this behavior is unacceptable and if they continue to do it then you know the the current crop of politicians need to go we need to vote them out of office and vote in people who are more in line with the cares and concerns of the population of this country rather than you know some unknown dark backroom political con- uh, you know contrivance that they have, and you know it doesn't matter whether they are Republican or Democrat. On the Republican side, this idea of keeping these threats uh, out there in order to try and and force an agenda that doesn't represent the the overwhelming majority of the American people. Uh, you know, is, is something we must correct. And for the Democrats, who, while they have the majority, are unwilling to use it out of some fear that it will come back in X number of years to haunt them, you know, that's, that's ludicrous. We need to get these things done. And, you know, our political leaders need to have the courage to stand up and say, I, you know, I am voting for this. I realize that, you know, it may not be popular with all of my constituents, but it is what is good for this country as a whole. You know, if the, if the, the debt ceiling isn't raised and, you know, the, the, the federal monetary system comes to a halt, some of the things that are going to get hit with that are Social Security payments. Medicare, pay for our military uh, service people. You know there are a whole range of direct impacts that a a shutdown of the government for financial reasons would trigger that are just going to make conditions extremely uh, grievous for you know tens of millions of people in this country, and the fact that. Our political leaders uh, can stand up, you know, on C-SPAN or on, you know, the news and tell us to our faces that, you know, they're not going to do this and and fly in the face of overwhelming majority support for getting this done by the American people. Uh, Basically, they're telling us we know what's best for you. You don't tell us what to do. Well, you know, Mr. and Ms. Elected Official. That's not the way the system works. We vote you into office to do the will of the people, not to ignore the will of the people, not to subvert the will of the people, to do what the people want. And, you know, regardless of you know, what that is, if, you know, whatever the, the political issue uh, is that is under consideration, if the majority of American people, if the majority of your constituents are in favor of it, then it's your responsibility to vote as they wish. Not to vote some other agenda that you know we may or may not know about or vote in support of some constituency that has a different agenda than the American people uh, and you know that's why you're there and you know the american people need to have the courage to stand up and say enough do what we tell you to do or we're going to vote you out and then make that happen that's the way you affect change in this country if we had that scenario in place where our political leaders would you know take you know, take to heart the polls and the surveys and all of the information that flows up to them about the feelings of the American people and you know, and act based on that. Uh, I dare say things in this country would be both a lot different than they are now and a lot better. So you know, it, it's clear that we have work to do as the citizens of this country, as I said, Democrats and Republicans are not the largest voting blocks in this country. It is those of us in the middle. It is the progressives. It is the moderates. It is the independents. It is you know those who are not in, in the extreme right or not in the extreme left. We are the ones who can affect the change that we need to see happen in this country. So, as always, you know, the call to action is to get engaged. You know, as we are now um, rolling headlong toward the midterms in November, the, the ear of the politician is actually pointed toward the, the voice of the public. We need to let them know what it is that we expect them to do once the elections uh, occur and once the elections are over. And if not, then we need to make some changes to our elected officials and to our government. So that's the call to action as always. And as always, I also want to thank every one of you for listening. I do appreciate it. If you have thoughts or comments on the show, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I seriously want to hear back from the listeners out there as to what they feel The problem is and what their solutions are. Let's get a dialogue going. Let's find out what the people think. And then let's make sure we're communicating that message to our elected officials. So everybody, please stay safe out there. Um, You know, please continue to follow the medical and scientific guidelines for keeping you safe from the the covid uh, pandemic that is still going through the country. I appreciate your listening each week, as always, and I will look forward to speaking with all of you again in seven days.